0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you need a Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll drop one off to you. And if you have a mobile device, you can tap on your screen now. 1 Samuel chapter 11. And let's just pray uh, as we get into the message tonight. So, Father, we, we again settle our hearts before you. And, Lord, I, I ask above all things tonight that my voice and my words would fade into the background and that your spirit, your will, and your heart would be manifested to each one of us. Lord, you know us so individually down to the hairs on our head. And you know our need, you know where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. And tonight, Lord, we look to you to be the one who helps us on the way. So I pray that you would take this text that you have placed here for us, and you would take this time that you've ordained from the foundation of the world, and that you would tune our hearts to hear you very clearly, Lord, and that you would make adjustments uh, in whatever is needed, whether it be our mentality, our behavior, our direction. Lord, we yield to you now that you would have your way in this place tonight. And so we thank you in advance, and we pray that you would anoint your word in our hearts as we hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, uh, many of you know, um, was slash am uh, a carpenter and uh, work with my hands. And, uh, and I have for a very long time, pretty much since the Lord saved me. It was about the same time that I started doing that. And uh, one of the things that I, I kind of figured out um, somewhere along the way in developing in that trade is, you know, I would go on to a job uh, or, you know, go into a situation and I would just feel confused. I would look at the project, uh, see everything and just not know what to do. There was kind of like this confusion, you know, of things. And then this amazing thing, I, I, I discovered it, is that as soon as I put my tool belt on, I would just put it, put it on. Suddenly, almost it almost was like I felt like Superman in his cape a little bit. But somehow, as soon as I put my tool belt on, I just knew what to do. And I I just, at some point, it just dawned on me that that was kind of always the pattern. And so anytime I felt confused, I realized that I just need to put my tool belt on, and I'll probably know what to do. And it always, always worked. It works today, even to this day. And, And the thing is this, is that, Tools, Okay, they're designed to give us kind of a vision. They're designed to help us. They're designed to enable us to do the thing that's in front of us that needs to be done. If we don't have tools, oftentimes we are confused and we're powerless. All right? Now, God has something for us to do. And sometimes we can have a season of our life, usually the young part of our life, there's a confusion. Sometimes we're walking in circles. We're looking around. We know that we, we intuitively know that we exist for a reason. We're looking around at a world that we live in, in and in a, in a sphere that we're kind of uh, existing in. But there's almost a confusion. We don't know what to do. And part of what God does in our lives when we come to him is that he begins to equip us. He begins to, as it were, put the tool belt on us and give to us the things that we need in order to interpret what we can do and what's necessary and where we fit into the big picture of all of that. And that's part of what he does. And so I opened our our study of of, uh, chapters 9 and 10 last week, uh, beginning this look at King Saul by, by saying to you that one of the hardest things, most difficult things that we go through in life is trying to figure out why we're here. Why am I here? Why do I exist? And really, and where am I going? You know, because I know I'm not where I'm going yet, whether that be heaven, big picture, or whether it be purpose in the immediate. How do I get there? What's going on? And that that's really up to God and our cooperation to bring us there, you know? Now, God, and I shared this, I don't mean to review so much, but we're kind of picking up where we left off. God has goals that he wants to meet in our lives along the way. That it isn't just about revealing our purpose and getting us to the destination of where we're going, but there's things that he's trying to accomplish in the process of raising us up. And so he's he's working in us, first of all, a devotion. He wants us to know him. It is a relationship. It it is not a boss-employee relationship. It isn't even so much a parent-child relationship. It starts that way, and it kind of has that dynamic to it, but but it's more than that. It's intimate. It's friendship, as Jesus called it. It's marriage, as the Bible depicts it. There's this depth of relationship that God wants to have with us, and this devotion that he's building into our Lives, that's really in many ways more important to Him than even if we get where we're going or if we have what we need to do, what He's called us to do is that devotion. And then in in the process of that, He's also working depth. He's trying to sink our roots into Him so that we learn how to draw life from Him and not from sources outside of Him that may seem to satisfy for a moment, but ultimately leave us empty in the long term. He wants us to learn to have depth in what it is that we are in him. And then he's also working in us kind of a discovery, So that we discover what our gifts are. We discover what our calling is. It isn't all at once. It's not a light switch, but it's as we move, we discern, we discover, we knock and we seek, we evaluate. Is, okay, I can't do this. I don't want to do that. I hate doing this. You know, but then there's other things that he opens a door and we find joy in it. We find that we have an ability we didn't know where it came from, and there's a discovery in it. And then there, there's this revelation that as God begins to reveal and bring us to the destination, but then really underneath all of that, it's important to God that there's distance. And that is that we go the distance and that we have the longevity to be able to continue in the things that he's called us to, that we don't just reach it, touch it, and then fall away or get bored and quit, or say, okay, I did it. I can mark that off my bucket list and give me the next thing, but we, can, we have depth. We can go forward, and there's longevity in it, and so God is doing all of this, and all that to say is that there's a process, and so the process of God giving us tools so that we know what to do, and we know where we're going, sometimes it takes time, and we don't like that because we're impatient people, but without it, we falter, we fail, and we fall. Now, one of the things that I love about the Bible, because God gave us this incredible gift to be able to, to, to gain wisdom and insight and see examples, is that God gives to us pictures of people's lives, and we get to see what happened to them. And the Bible tells us, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. It says that the things that happen to the people in the Bible happen to them as examples for us. Okay, so God specifically put people's stories in the Bible in order to instruct us and give us insight into what he's doing in our lives. And I'm so thankful for that. I, I was listening to, to, to someone... I, one of the things that I'm growing to hate, it, it, it boils me, is when Christians criticize other Christians, you know, and, and, and I realize that, yes, there are some churches and Christians that maybe need to be criticized in the whole thing, but, but really, I think it's done way too much and way too easily, you know, that it's done. And so I was listening to someone who started to kind of criticize uh, Bible teachers, and, and the accusation was a new one. I've never heard this one. And what they used was this term called narcegesis. And and that's supposed to sound very intelligent, very theologically sophisticated. Okay, but let me explain what that word means, narcegesis, okay? There is a word called exegesis, and that means basically to extract from the scriptures and expound what's there. Okay, that's exegesis, and that's good. Everybody agrees. We like that, okay? Then there's another word. It's called isogesis. Isogesis, that's not so good. Isogesis means that you're putting into the text something that's not there. You're making it say something that it's not, but this is one's a new one, Narsogesis. Narcigesis, it's a play on the word narcissist and exegesis, and what it means is putting yourself in the text, and they were saying, like, "Oh, this awful! This new thing is narcissism Is making it all about you." And and so you read David and Goliath, and it's not about David slaying the giant in his life. It's not about Jesus slaying the giant of sin. It's about you slaying the giant in your life. I hear that, and I go, "I hope it is." <laughs> I hope it is because there's some giants in my life that I need them to fall down. And if that story's not there, at least in part, to help me understand that it's possible and that it can be done, then that scares me a little bit. Okay, I have to be able to look at my life through the lens of the word and not feel like I'm sinning because somewhere in there I'm in the text. All right? God says that these things are written as examples for us. All right. So when God puts before us the story of King Saul and he contrasts it very clearly with the story of King David, I can't help but hope that God's intention in doing that is that I might learn something from their life and gain insight into why things are happening to me the way that they are. And I'm so thankful that there's truth in that. Because when I consider King Saul, who we're looking at, and the things that happened to him, and then I consider King David, who is the contrast of Saul and what happened to him, and then I see what's going on in my life, and sometimes I argue with God over the choices that he's making for me. When I look at these two lives, sometimes it makes me say, okay, God, thank you. Thank you that you're not doing things the way that I want you to do things. You're doing things the way you know they need to be done in order to create devotion and depth and discovery and destination and distance. These are the things that are important to God and they're important for us and I want them. Though sometimes maybe it's a little bit painful. There is pain on the pathway to purpose. Sometimes we want it now Okay, and God has something for later for good reason and for good intention. Okay, now Saul got what he wanted. Saul got what we want and he got it when we want it. He got it right away. Okay, Saul got it fast. He had immediate promotion, advancement, recognition, and honor. He didn't have to train. He didn't have to prepare. He didn't have to go through the careful progress of working through the ranks. He didn't have to overcome obstacles. He didn't have to learn to balance work and family and professional life and emotional strife and making mistakes. He didn't have to go through the process of falling in order to get back up again. He didn't have to be maligned and criticized and say things that were twisted and thrown back in his face. He didn't have to go through anything. He just walked into a room and a crown was placed on his head. Now, I go, oh, that sounds so, so good sometimes, all right? Saul went from Minecraft in his parents' basement to majesty in a couple of minutes, all right? It was just handed to him. It was so incredibly easy, okay? Now, Inside, Saul knew that something wasn't right with that. We saw that at the end of the chapter of our last study. Because at the moment that he was to be coronated and elevated before the entire nation, he was hiding in a stockroom, Because somewhere inside, he knew that uh, maybe it's not supposed to be like this. But he also wasn't going to pass up the opportunity, as probably most of us would not. Okay, We talked about imposter syndrome. A little bit, that he had this thing going on inside of him that he was having a crown placed on his head, and he was being told that he was fit for this position, but inside, deep inside, he knew that he wasn't. And that's something we all go through, that whole idea of imposter syndrome. I'm, I'm in a position, I have a calling, and it's not that I'm insincere, and it's not that I'm even an imposter, but inside, deep inside, I know my humanness, I know my weakness and my vulnerability. I know that really I'm not qualified on the deepest level to do anything, especially for the Lord in my life. And so there is this thing where, where, where I, I feel my insufficiency. And that is one of the reasons, listen to me, that time is essential in the process of God in raising us up. Because it takes time For me to lean on his sufficiency and to lean and trust on him in spite of my weakness and my insufficiency and even my failures. Because he is with me, not because I'm qualified, but because he's called me. He gives me authority, not because I have the intellectual prowess and ability, but because he says, I'll be with you. And I'm going to take you through this because I'm going to do it in your life. And it takes time to lean on that because my nature is to lean on me. And if I don't realize that, okay, it's okay that I can't do it. It's okay that I'm not strong enough. It's okay that I don't have all the answers. It's okay that I fail sometimes miserably and make big messes and mistakes because God is going to be with me in spite of those things. He's not excusing all of that. He's working through all of that and in all of that. And if I don't lean on all of that, then I'll lean on me. And that's where messes happen, okay? Now, David is a completely different story. The crown doesn't come quick for him. It's a totally different path to the same place. And so as we look at King Saul, we find out why or what happens if Purpose comes too quickly. And why can't I have it now? And that's the name of the message tonight. The title of the message is, But I Want It Now. <laughs> There's no Burger King in heaven. I can tell you that. Uh, and some of you will say, Praise the Lord. And some of you maybe don't want to go there anymore. But nevertheless, let's look at chapter 11 and let's see what happens with King Saul. We're going to see the cracks. In the divine crown, right off the bat, and then uh, and then next week we 'll look at the unraveling when it finally all falls down so quickly, um, but chapter eleven verse one, it says this it says, "Then Nahash the ammonite, so then it 's right after the coronation, right after Saul is elevated in the eyes of the entire nation and held up as their new king. This is what you asked for, and now here it is, you have it. He's strong, he's broad-shouldered, he's taller than anybody else, he's competent, here he is. Then, after that, Nahash the Ammonite, an enemy, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Okay, so here comes this enemy force now. He's the king of Amman, which is a Jordanian town or Jordanian country. And he comes into this smaller village and he invades it and he lays a siege against it. And the men count, they look, they see. The, the odds are not stacked in their favor. And so the elders of this Israeli town go out to this king who's invading their land and they say, Listen, we'll, we'll make a peace treaty with you. We'll be your slaves if you let us live. How's that sound? Well, Nahash, verse two, the Ammonite answered them and he says, on this condition, will I make a covenant with you? One condition in the contract, one clause. That I might thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. Okay, so we can do this, but I'm also gonna take your right eye, the right eye of every single person. If you'll agree to that, then I will make this covenant with you. Now, these people are so desperately afraid and so completely insecure That they say to the governor, verse 3, they say that the elders of Jabesh said unto him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers to all the coasts of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, then we will come out to you. In other words, let us think about it. That might not be a bad deal. Okay, we'll, we'll evaluate. We'll try it. We'll put patches over an eye for a week. We'll see if we can get our depth perception back. In the meantime, we'll see if we can call up all of our friends and get a football game going. and, and see we'll, we'll see if we can get enough people to actually fight against you. Let's see if maybe we can do this whole thing. Now, here's what I want you to see in this little episode that begins chapter 11. Is that the people have the king that they asked for. But they do not have confidence in the king that's been set over them. Their initial response is not let us contact the king's office that was just put in his place and see what he's got planned. They immediately feel like, oh, we're doomed. We have no hope. There's nothing that we can do. Let's see what we can uh, pull together apart from anything that might be prepared for us in this whole thing. He's anointed, he's announced, but he's not respected. He's not being taken seriously as of yet. Uh, my first pastor, uh, actually the pastor that ordained me as a pastor and discipled me really uh, invested in me quite a bit. Um, I remember there was one season and I was a young man. I was in my early 20s and uh, there was a group of us that were all relatively young in that age bracket that he was working with and raising up. Um, and there was one week or something that he went to Israel on a tour with some people from the church and uh, his wife kind of came up with this idea that we would bless him by re- Remodeling his office while he was away and surprising him when he came back. And so we remodeled his office, uh, did the whole thing, made it really nice and and all. And he came back and he was blessed. And so uh, made it really cool. But in the process of it, we took everything off the walls and painted the walls. And he kind of put the office all back together, but he never put his ordination certificates back up on the wall. He had two of them from two different um, places, you know. And and he didn't put them up. They were just kind of like under behind his desk on the side. And I remember on one particular instance, one of the other guys that was there said, Said to him, said, Bob, why don't you put your ordination certificates up on the wall? And he said, why? And he said, well, so that when people come in here for counseling, they, they feel like at least there's some credibility behind who's counseling them, you know? And I remember like he didn't miss a beat, but he looked him right in the eye with like the perfect countenance. And he said, he said to this guy, he said, John, he said, if the people don't know that I'm a pastor before they come in here, then it doesn't matter what's on the wall once they do. And I'll never forget those words because it communicated something that that resonated deep in my spirit. And that is that your calling is not something that you're appointed to or certified in. It's something that exists deep on the inside. And the calling is something that resonates out of your life and not something that is something that's given to you by someone else. And so what Saul has here is that Saul has the certificate. Saul has the crown upon his head. But he hasn't won the hearts of the people. He has power in the sense that he's been appointed, but he doesn't have authority in that he is respected or that he has influence. Uh, pastor and author John Maxwell Many of you probably have uh, heard of him or read some of his books He's kind of a leadership guru He's a student of leadership, always been fascinated by it And he wrote a book um, that I, I listened to half of the audiobook and tried to keep on it But I'm just not that deep, um, not that smart, you know, to be able to retain it um, but, but his book is called The Five Levels of Leadership. And I actually like the way he communicates it because there's truth in what he says. But he says that basically there's, there's five different levels that you reach as a leader. Uh, and, and number one, the lowest level is position. And that is that you have just earned the title. You've earned the certificate. You know, that's the lowest level. You have authority because you've been appointed. You've been called manager. And so people have to listen to you because you have the title. Second level is Permission meaning that you've got enough credibility that people now see your competence and they give you permission to lead them. The third level is production, and that is that you've actually accomplished something. You've done something, and people can see that you've done something, and so therefore they're comfortable following you because you get things done. Number four, the level four, is relationship or development, and that is that when you have imparted to someone else through your life something that adds value to them, now they're following you because you have built something into them. They re, they, they're, they're, they're coming to realize that you are the real deal. And then number five, the fifth level, he calls influence, essentially. And that is that people respect you as a leader because of who you are as a person on top of all of the other things. And he says that when you come to that point where influence is the reason why people follow you, you're a level five leader. Now, here's what's going on with Saul. He's a level one leader with a level five position, meaning he needs to be the influential king, but he's done nothing. He's just a man who's been given a crown, and therefore the people don't even recognize the leadership that he's been given. Well, watch what happens in verse four. It says, then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, and they told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd, just mark that in your mind, out of the field. And Saul said, what aileth the people that they weep? And they told him all the tidings of the men of Jabesh. So just pause right there, and I just want you to see something about Saul that's gonna be important to see what kind of a leader that he actually is. Is that it says that Saul came after the herd. And that might you know, seem to you to be inconsequential information, it doesn't really matter, but it actually is quite significant, and it tells us a lot. Because there are two types of livestock farmers, okay? There are herdsmen, or cowboys, and there are shepherds. Those are the two different types. And Saul is a herdsman. He's a cowboy. And here's what a rancher or a cowboy does they lead from behind, they drive the flock, they manipulate the herd, they use fear tactics, tools, and even branding for identification. It is a very specific form of controlling a herd or livestock. It's coming behind, okay? That's what Saul is. It says that he came behind the herd. Now, the shepherd, on the other hand, of which David will be, and that will be the way he leads, the shepherd goes before. The sheep follow the shepherd because the shepherd wins their trust. He encourages Confidence in the sheep. He wins their confidence and makes them feel safe in following where he's leading. A shepherd values those he's leading, and a shepherd knows the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd. It's a completely different dynamic. And at this point, Saul's style of leadership is that of a herdsman. He's one who leads from behind. He leads with thrusting, with control. He leads by manipulation, and his purposes often are selfish. Okay, so he's a herdsman. Keep note of it. Now, watch this. It says, in verse 6, it says that the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings... And his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces. Just picture it. It wouldn't, be good. it wouldn't be, you know, full study if you didn't actually get a mental picture of that in your head. He takes a machete and he gets off, he kind of gets off his John Deere tractor and he just hacks the thing to pieces. There's hydraulic fluid everywhere. You know, it's, it's a, a bloody mess, And he sent them, so now he calls FedEx, and he puts pieces of cow and bull into boxes, and he sends them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, here's the note that's attached to the outside. Just thought you'd love this. Merry Christmas from Saul the king and his family. He says, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. What would you do? All right. All right. The governor just sent me a piece of a cow and said this is what he's going to do to me if I don't show up at such and such a time for such and such a purpose. Now, I want you to, 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 to take a note of this, all right? All right. The spirit of God comes upon, this is so confusing to me, all right? My check engine light just goes on right away because it says that the spirit of God came upon Saul and it says that his anger was kindled. And, and right away I go, wait a minute, those two things don't fit together because when I read about the spirit of God, I never read about anger Isaiah chapter 11, verse one and two describes very clearly the personality of the spirit of the Lord. It says that there will come forth a, 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 a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And it says that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Here's the description. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Those are the attributes of the person of the Holy Spirit, what he imparts. Now, the New Testament, book of Galatians, chapter 5, says this, and I want you to hear it, okay? In contrast to that, Galatians 5.19, it says this, now the works of the flesh, that is the attributes of myself, the personality that I possess apart from God, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations. Here's the word, ready? Wrath and strife. And that means anger and contention. That anger and seditions and heresies, and then he goes on and he describes more, and he basically condemns all of those things, Anger is an attitude or a response that is typically associated with my flesh. So when I read that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and anger was the outcome, immediately I'm confused by that. I don't really fully understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, But here's what I do understand. I understand that God in the Old Testament came upon people for his purposes and endued them with power and strength to fulfill his will. And in that, I understand that when the power of the spirit comes upon me and I use it to energize the methods of my flesh, things begin to get messy. And that's exactly what happens with Saul. Let me say it this way, is that when the resource of God's anointing is channeled into feeding old habits and strategies in my life, I end up with problems on steroids. And that's what's going to happen to Saul, okay? There are some Christians, even today, that are confused because they pray for more of the power of God's Holy Spirit in their life, and yet it doesn't come. And sometimes I believe that the reason why God does not release Fully, what he can release and wants to release within our lives is because we resist God's promptings for repentance and change. And if God would give us the power we're desiring, in our flesh, we would channel his energy, strength, and wisdom to accomplish our goals and wills according to our strategies and ways and not his. And I think oftentimes that's why we lack the power that we pray for. Okay, Saul channeled God's spirit and power into his method and way of getting things done, which was completely contrary to God's. Okay, now let's think about this in the light of other scripture. How did Jesus respond when the spirit came upon him? It says that he was moved with compassion on the multitude because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a far contrast from what we're seeing in the life of Saul. What about Paul the apostle? When he was in Athens, it says that he was stirred that the spirit stirred him up when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And it moved him to plead with the people from to turn from that which could not profit them and to turn to the living God in the person of Jesus Christ who could. And that's a far cry different from what we see in Saul here. He is using the power of the spirit to motivate, invigorate and empower His strategies and ways, and it's going to cause big, big problems. You know what's interesting is that there'll be an episode in David's life where he'll have a similar experience, where something will happen and it will ignite his anger. His spirit will come alive. But he doesn't have the same kind of crown and ability and authority that Saul does yet in his life, and thus God is able to spare him from making huge mistakes. Let me ask you, what do you do when the spirit comes on you? How do you respond? Okay, notice what Saul does. It says that he grew angry, okay? He let the spirit motivate anger. Now, David, on the other hand, when the spirit came upon him, it moved him to action. Remember, very similar thing. Remember Goliath? We'll get there. Goliath comes out and he defies the armies of the living God. And the spirit came upon David when that happened. But it didn't move David to anger. It moved him to action. He said, I'll go by myself, Who does this guy think he is? Saul did something that garnered attention, but didn't inspire the people whom he was leading. He cut up a cow and sent it out and said, you better, and the people said, whoa, this guy's serious, he's the real deal. But it didn't inspire them to wanna follow, it filled them with fear of what would happen if they didn't. They weren't motivated the right way. And look at Saul, he used reputation not devotion. Saul said, come follow Samuel and Saul. He said nothing about the glory of the God of Israel or about the future of his kingdom or about the promises that he made that he would defend them against their enemies. He doesn't point to God at all. He points to himself and the person who gave him his title. And that was the strength of his whole drive. Okay, listen, be careful that you don't misappropriate the spirit's resources. Has God given you wisdom? Why did God give you wisdom? Has God given you money and the ability to manage it and build it? Why? Did God give you strength and the ability to understand people and to move and lead people? Why did God give you that? Did God give you strength and energy like people that the rest of us are jealous of? (laughs) Why did God give that to you? The, The question is to find out why, okay? If you don't have the character to support the resources, then you're going to have me motives versus God's intentions, and you're going to make a mess of things all around you. Saul is a herdsman. As a herdsman, he will lead, and as a herdsman, he will fall. That's his leadership model. Now, chapter 11, verse 8 through 15, I wrote right over that whole section in my Bible, weep when it works. Okay. When you use faulty methods to get things done and it works, that's not good because that will just crystallize in your mind that that's how you should do it. And it's not necessarily how you should do it. Sometimes things work, even though they're done the wrong way. Watch what happens. Verse eight. It says that when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, They responded, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, thus shall you say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, you shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out unto you, and you shall do with us all that seems good unto you. And so it was in the morning that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, shall Saul reign over us, bring the men that we may put them to death? Okay. So now the same people that didn't have enough confidence in Saul to send a message to him first before they wanted to make a covenant with the, now they're saying, who didn't believe Saul could save us? Come and we'll kill him. So Saul said in verse 13, there shall not a man be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay. So here Saul becomes a level two leader, as it were. He now has permission from the people to lead them because he's actually accomplished something, or therefore, should I say, God has accomplished something through Saul. Listen, there are times that God will cause something to prosper, not because it's done right, not even necessarily because you're right or I'm right, but because God is gonna do what is right for his people in spite of the faulty methods that are employed to get it done. But it will not come without consequence later on. And that's exactly what's gonna to happen to Saul. When we get to chapter 12 here, we have what I've called the great exhortation. It's the word of Samuel to them, and listen, to us. Listen to what Samuel says in light of the direction the nation is going moving forward. It says that Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray headed. And behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken or whose ass have I taken or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed or whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith and I'll restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us nor oppressed us. Neither have you taken anything from any man's hand. And he said unto them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand and they answered, he is witness. Now he begins this exhortation this way on purpose because he is about to rebuke them for asking for a king. And essentially what he's saying is that God raised me up to rule over you and I've done nothing but right by you. And I've taken nothing from you. And none of you can charge me with any wrongdoing or any corruption at all. God has been perfectly faithful to you in using me, just a man. Not a king, not a politician, not an elected official. A man of God filled with the spirit of God leading the people of God. And it has gone right by you. Do you agree? And the people say, amen, we agree. And he says, good, I've got you set up. Here goes. Verse 6. And Samuel said unto the people, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't a king, it wasn't a ruler, it wasn't a chief, it was the Lord. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which, oh, you better get used to that inflection because it's coming 29 times in the next few verses. When Jacob was come into Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera on purpose because they forsook him. The captain of the host of Hazar and into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the king of Moab and they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. In other words, the people realized that they were not better off having put God out and thus they called on him for deliverance. I was having a conversation with Pastor Mike uh, a few days ago, here in the office. And as we were just talking about things and what's going on in the world, I I posed him this question. I said, I said, Mike, I said, do you think that if you could rewind time and you could go back to the 1980s and you could somehow sabotage the invention of the internet and the smartphone so that they never came to be do you think the world would be a better place today than it is? And before I even finished framing the question, he was going, yes, 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 yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, there have been some things that we have done as a world, not just as a nation, that have greatly affected The situation that we find ourselves in right now, Now, but even bigger than that. And I happen to agree with that. I think probably we would not have some conveniences that we have. We might not be as far along, but I think the world would be a much better place today if there was no internet and there was no smartphone, but there's an even bigger one than that because there was a moment and it probably happened gradually and with a little bit of legislation over a long period of time. But we as a nation and really as a world, we asked God to no longer be present in our systems. And the result of that, by and large, is the circumstances that we find ourselves sitting in in the world that we live in today. And what Samuel is saying to these people, he's saying, listen, you guys had God and you forsook God and that's why you have problems, but thankfully you realize that's why you had problems and therefore you repented of that move and God helped you. Let that be a word (laughs) to the world that we live in today that God is the answer to our problems. God says in verse 11 that the Lord sent Jerubaal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and he delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelled safe. There's one verse. God can help so easily. But then verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, when did he ever fail you in time past when you had a need? When that you ever turned to God to be your help? Did God ever say, no, I'm not going to help you? He's been with you. He promises that he's going to be with you and he's going to be for you. He says, now therefore behold the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. In other words, Samuel said, you asked for it, you've got it. I gave you what you asked for. And you've taken a huge step down in choosing to trust in a human leader over the help of your Lord. Listen, be careful what you ask for. One of the things that I am so thankful for that God has taught me in my life, and and I'm not even saying I get it right every time, okay? But by and large, I have learned that he knows me better than I know me and I trust him to make my choices for me. And when you can learn that God knows you better than you know you and to trust him to do what's best in your life and not to demand of him that he do what you think is best for your life, happy are you. Because when God gives in to your desire and your request, it's always a step down. If, verse 14, it's not over. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and also the king that reigns over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and shall the ha- then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, not your king, and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called the Lord. And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, pray for your servants unto the Lord, your God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, fear not. For you have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn not aside, for then should you go after vain things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are vain. Listen, this is the great exhortation of chapter 12. The whole reason why Samuel called this meeting together in the first place. He said, listen, regardless of what's been done in the past, Right now, today, regardless of getting what you wanted, sleeping in the bed that you made for yourself, regardless of the days that have gone by, right now, where you are, put your full trust in God. Put your full devotion in God. Set all of your roots and everything that you draw for your life from him absolutely and completely. And the Lord will not forsake you, but... If you choose to give yourself to anything else, then know that you're giving yourself to something that is empty, that cannot help you, and that will not ultimately satisfy. That's what he means when he says in verse 21, he said, for then you will go after vain things which cannot profit or deliver for they are vain. And anytime you find yourself drifting from devotion to God, In order to draw some satisfaction or life from anything else other than him, know that you will come up empty every time, though for a moment you get excited about it. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he has done for you. But if you shall still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. Listen, God says you ask for a king and so you shall have a king. But don't trust in your king. You trust in God. And he says this, here's what you do. You follow God with all of your heart. Where are we as a nation? Where are you as an individual? In your family life, in your relational life, in your emotional and personal life, where are you? Listen, wherever you are right now, that's where you are. But you have the choice today whether or not you want to put your full trust in God for everything that concerns you from now and into your future. That choice is with you. And should you do it, God will not forsake you, even as he said. But he wants relationship with you. We all have things like Saul that are going for us and things that are working against us in our life. That's the truth about every one of us. I want you to understand that Saul's issues are not fully his fault. And here's why. Because he did not choose the timing of his anointing and the coronation of the crown being set upon his head. That was something that was completely done by God. That wasn't his choice. Okay. Now, what he chose to do after the fact, that's on him. All right. And that's the same thing that's true for every one of us. Because all of us are a mixed bag. We all have good and we all have evil inside of us, all right? Personally, (laughs) all right, I know me and I know that I'm half sinner and I'm half saint. I know that I'm partially patient and I'm partially pushy. I know that I'm partway holy and I'm partway heathen. I know that there are parts of my life where I'm very humble and I know that there's other areas of my life where I'm extremely proud. I know that I am both diligent and lazy. It depends what I'm doing or when you catch me. I am both disciplined and a disorganized mess. I'm both of those things, just like you. There's times where I can't get God out of my mind, and there's times that I can't get God into my mind. I'm a mix of all of these things, okay? Now, what I do with that is on me, and if I choose To live my life leaning upon my own personal weakness rather than trusting in what he's doing in my life, I'm gonna end up going the wrong way and veering into a mess every time. That's what happened to Saul. He leaned upon his intellect and not his anointing, he trusted in his own ways and not in God's power and God's calling. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, it's a very famous passage. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He said that the branch can do nothing on its own. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And Jesus gave three promises that were associated with us abiding in him. He said that if we abide in him, he said that we will ask for what we need and he'll give it to us. He said that he will work in our lives. I wrote him down because I knew that I would draw a blank at that moment. Maybe I did. No, he said that he would answer our prayers. He said that he would give us fullness of joy. And he said that we would bear much fruit if we would abide in him. Meaning that as I abide in him relationally, as I allow his word to dwell in me richly, as I walk through my life moment by moment, trusting in him in the moment that he's going to lead me circumstantially and not leaning on my own mind, but leaning on him, abiding in him. Then as I talk to him, he's going to answer. There's going to be a freedom of joy and rejoicing in my heart and there's going to be fruit that comes out of my life. That's on me. And that's the choice that he puts before every one of us. And here's my message to you tonight. It all comes down to this, okay? This whole idea of, but I want it now. Let me give you, Two things that are a guaranteed way to quickly mess up your life. You can make a mess of your life in just two easy payments, two easy steps. Right now, I right, just do these two things. Number one is main, main, maintain control of your own path. Right, this is the way I want to go. This is what I want to do. This is this is my way. I'm going to do it. My, you just do that and watch what happens. Let me know how that works out for you. And then number two is at all costs, you want to mess up your life, at all costs, avoid conviction, correction, and change. Do not allow the spirit of God or the word of God or the people of God shine any light on any flaw that you have. Just ignore it and pretend they're not there. Don't deal with any of the you. You just do you and watch what happens in your life. But if you want God's best, if you want destiny, and I use that word to mean destination, getting where you're going, and you want to last and go the distance in that place, then you surrender you. You acknowledge that, yeah, I'm broken and I'm undone and half the stuff in here is messed up and God, I need you to change it or I'm going to make a train wreck of my life. And you lay it at the foot of the cross and you say, Jesus, change me from the inside and teach me what it means to abide in you fully. And no matter how long it takes, no matter what kind of pressure, no matter what kind of process you have to complete in order to get me where I'm going in a way that will last and in a fullness of joy and an abundance of fruit, then God, I trust in you to do your will in me. Father, I thank you tonight, Lord, that you lay these things before us. You're so faithful, Lord, to testify truth. And so I ask tonight, Lord, for each of us that are here, that you would now shine the searchlight of this verse, this word upon our hearts. And that you'd show us, God, where we've become self-willed, where we're unsurrendered, where we, like Israel, have become demanding and said, give us, because we have desired. Oh, God, save us from our desires and conform us into what's best for our lives. For we choose this night to trust you we believe that you know us better than we know ourselves. We believe, Lord, that in that moment when we find ourselves in the place that you have ultimately prepared for us, both here and in heaven, that we will say yes and amen. So, Lord, may we not go kicking and screaming. May we not take the long road, Lord, because of self-will. But help us, Lord Jesus. We trust you to have your way in all things in our lives. We commit to you tonight, our families, marriages, our relationships, our plans, our careers, even our mistakes and the things that we've messed up along the way. And we choose, Lord, this night right here right now to put our full trust in you, to sink our roots deep into the person of Jesus Christ, to draw on the wisdom of your word and the strength of your spirit. we give you permission to wrestle out of our hands those things that we can't let go of that we might know your blessedness in our lives so do God what only you can and what only you've wanted to do from the foundation of our existence and make us completely yours we pray these things tonight in Jesus name amen let's stand thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast